Welcome to The Weather Pod, a podcast about the growing importance of weather information to business and society. I'm Alan Thorpe. I'm a former Director General of the European Centre for Medium Range Weather Forecasts, a former head of the UK Met Office's Hadley Centre, and a Professor of Meteorology. And I'm David Rogers. I'm a former Chief Executive of the UK Met Office and am now a consultant with the World Bank, helping countries improve their weather-related disaster management systems and services. Weather information is a critical international resource for saving lives, making business and society more efficient, and building resilience to extreme weather and climate change. In each episode, we invite a leading expert to discuss how public, private and academic sectors work together to produce weather information and make it available to business and society. We also investigate how weather-affected public and private enterprises actually use it and the new business opportunities being created. And because extreme weather often impacts the poorest the hardest, we'll look beyond the rich countries to the less developed ones, which host most of the world's population. Right, now it's time for Wow That's Interesting. Wow! So, Alan, what have you got for Wow That's Interesting for this episode? 127 years ago, the Norwegian researcher and explorer Fridtjof Nansen set sail on the first ever Arctic drift expedition with his wooden sailing ship Fram. But there's never been an expedition like the Mosaic Project that took a modern research icebreaker laden with scientific instruments close to the North Pole in winter. Mosaic, which stands for the Multidisciplinary Drifting Observatory for the Study of Arctic Climate, is the first year-round expedition into the Central Arctic, exploring the Arctic climate system. The project, with a total budget exceeding 140 million euros, was designed by an international consortium of leading polar research institutions, led by the Alfred Wegener Institute and the Helmholtz Centre for Polar and Marine Research. Together with the Year of Polar Prediction, Mosaic forms an integral part of the WMO's polar prediction programme. So, Alan, when did the expedition actually get underway? Well, after much preparation, it was on the 20th of September 2019 when the Alfred Wegener Institute's research icebreaker Polar Stern, which means Pole Star, departed the Norwegian port of Tromsø, bound for the Central Arctic, the epicentre of climate change. Once there, the ship allowed itself to become trapped in the ice and began a one-year-long drift across the North Pole. Completely at the mercy of natural forces, the route and speed were determined solely by the ice drift powered by wind and currents. Exactly who was involved in this epic voyage? Over the five legs of the Mosaic expedition, a total of 442 researchers, plus Polar Stern's crew, young investigators, teachers and members of the press, took part. Seven ships, several aircraft and more than 80 institutions from 20 countries were also involved. The researchers who hailed from 37 countries had a common goal, to investigate complex interactions in the climate system between the atmosphere, ice and ocean, as well as life in the central Arctic, so as to better represent them in climate models. Better represent them in climate models? Why? What are the shortcomings? Well, normally the North Pole is not usually covered by satellite data and this leaves what's called a polar hole visible in most Arctic maps. Ordinarily, vessels do not journey near the North Pole, so ice support services are not warranted or needed. However, this posed a challenge when the polar stern drifted north of the routine coverage of the satellite Copernicus Sentinel-1. Just how did they get around this problem? 
Well, the WMO Polar Space Task Group, which comprises 13 space agencies, undertook a special tasking of the satellites to obtain data of the seldom-imaged North Pole region. How long did it actually take to acquire the information about Arctic climate change that they were seeking? After more than a year in the Central Arctic, on Monday the 12th of October 2020, the Polar Stern arrived back at her home port of Bremerhaven. The expedition was truly record-breaking. Never before had an icebreaker been near the North Pole in winter, and never before could international researchers comprehensively gather such urgently needed climate data in the region of the world hardest hit by climate change. Drifting with the ice, they'd endured extreme cold, Arctic storms and a constantly changing ice flow, plus the challenges posed by the coronavirus pandemic. So Alan, what are the conclusions that they've been able to draw to date about the impact of climate change on the Arctic? While the central Arctic remains a fascinating frozen landscape in winter, the fact is that ice is only half as thick as it was 40 years ago, while the winter temperatures encountered were nearly always 10 degrees warmer than what Fridtjof Nansen experienced 127 years ago. To be more precise, Polar Stern witnessed this summer's flows shrink to their second lowest ever extent in the modern era. The floating ice withdrew to just under 3.74 million square kilometres. The only time this minimum has been beaten in the age of satellites was 2012, when the pack ice was reduced to 3.41 million square kilometres. Put another way, this is a reduction in the pack ice amounting to a staggering 13% per decade, averaged across the month of September. You're listening to WeatherPod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. Today it's our pleasure to welcome Catalina Heme to the WeatherPod. Hi, Catalina. Hi, David and Alan. Catalina, you've had a lot of experience working on humanitarian issues with UN agencies and now with the Red Cross, Red Crescent Movement. You have a passion for early warning and early action to reduce or even eliminate disaster risk. And you're involved in the development of the forecast-based financing concept, which we'll discuss in a moment. But first, I think many listeners will be interested to know more about your personal journey from industrial engineering to humanitarian action. Great, yeah. So first of all, I thank you so much for inviting me to the podcast. I'm, I'm quite excited to be able to, to share uh, some of the work that we're doing in the Red Cross Red Crescent and also my, my personal journey. And uh, I mean, yeah, with regards to your question, this is fascinating. So basically, I mean, I have always been fascinated by, by humanitarian action, I would say, since I was very little... In the school, I was part of the emergency and first aid team. I was part of the brigades of education, going to like really poor areas of Bogota. Um, and, and then, no, like, I mean, I decided to study industrial engineering because it was more of an opportunity. I really like maths. And, uh, and, and I knew somehow, no, like, there was a lot of like risk management and quality control and processes within, within industrial engineering. And I was very attracted to that. But I was also in uni during a time where the conflict in Colombia was really intense, like at the end of the 90s, beginning of the of the noughties, it was, like, it was really, really bad, like with so many IDPs. And also at a certain point when I was in uni, I, I, I was just very interested. I really wanted to, I mean, yeah, to, to, to work on, on those issues. And I, and I was so lucky that when I was Finishing my, my university degree, um, I managed to get a volunteer position with the World Food Program 
and, and then they just hired me after and I started to work since then, since the, since the early, early notice in humanitarian action and here I am. Catalina, that's really interesting. I, I expect um, people would be quite acquainted with the Red Cross, Red Crescent societies, but I suspect many of them would be unfamiliar with the Red Cross, Red Crescent Climate Centre. Could you say a few words about what it is and what its role is? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the, the first thing, like the, the Red Cross and Red Crescent Climate Center is just like the most fascinating organization that you could imagine. I mean, it's just, uh, it's just so great to be part of the Red Cross and Red Crescent movement, but have a very specific technical role uh, supporting all the different Red Crosses uh, and the IFRC and the ICRC. Uh, not like within the movement, it's, it's really privileged to, to be part of the organization. But I mean, what we are, we are a, a technical reference center uh, on climate risk management. We, we operate in the intersection between policy, practice and research to make sure that we uh, influence like climate action at different time scales uh, across the globe. So we do it from a policy perspective, um, no, like being really influential uh, in kind of like climate change related negotiations. We have a, an important role as well in research, like trying to make sure that we connect research outputs with implementation in the field, that we can like influence research agendas. And, and very importantly, actually, that all this is translated into practice. So we do support all the Red Crosses in the world to, to really integrate like climate action within their programs, within their strategies. So yes, it's a wonderful organization to work with. So you've mentioned that you um, obviously look at climate research. I'm sort of interested to know, it must be quite a challenge to keep up with all the worldwide research in climates. And uh, I, I guess a related point would be, how, how large is the centre? How many people? Are, are you distributed around the world or in one location? So I think that's one of the amazing, I guess, like advantages and add value of the Climate Center that we are distributed all over the world. So we are around 40 people and we are literally based from like Fiji, New Zealand to the West Coast in the US. Like we have like people in Southern uh, Africa, in Latin America, like everywhere, like literally, like in very strategic points of the, of the world. And how about keeping up with the latest climate research? That must be quite a challenge. Yeah, definitely. So it's very, it's quite interesting. I mean, from, from one side, like some of the members of our team are, for instance, authors in, on the IPCC. No, like, that, that really give us no, like, like a really good position to really be fully aware of, uh, of climate-related research at that level. No? So I think that that's definitely a key important thing. But then at the same time, because we have people with different type of like expertise and, and, and very well located across the world, so we do have partnerships with different research institutions uh, in different continents. So we can kind of like keep up today of like what is happening in every kind of like corner of the world, uh, I would say. And we also have a role um, as knowledge brokers, uh, for example, in like one big UK like based research program that is called SHEAR, um, and in which basically we work is a massive, massive program with like around 40 universities, not only from the UK, but also from like different like countries and continents. 
Um, and then that, that keep us in a very interesting position because we are basically in the middle of like really knowing about the research that is happening, you know, but also trying to make sure that that research is it really reach the, the, the implementation side and to make sure that that could be really used to, to make a difference. So yeah, so somehow that we're in a very interesting position in terms of research. Catalina, you're heavily involved with the concept of forecast-based financing, which appears to make great use of impact-based weather and climate forecasts. Can you tell us what forecast-based financing actually is and how it works? In a short sentence, no lie. So forecast-based financing is a mechanism that triggers automatic funding for early action based on a forecast and risk analysis. Catalina, could you give an example of how you use forecast-based financing in real life? Yeah, totally. So we have, it's quite fascinating. So, so we started to develop all these systems around six years ago or seven years ago. And uh, I mean, one of the, of the early kind of like, like examples or like, like pilots that we did was in Peru. So in Peru, uh, we decided, you know, like with the government and, and different like partners, uh, that it was really important to, to develop a system like this for cold waves and snowfall. Because normally uh, people in the, in the Andes, uh, like families who live kind of like very high up in the Andes, you know, like they get really affected by these cold waves and, and snowfall. And in particular, when we did the whole analysis of like what were the impacts that, that people was really uh, facing was mortality of alpacas and also some like respiratory diseases and, and so on. So then we set up a system in which we could use uh, a short-term forecast and, and risk analysis to determine when we could trigger our early actions. And those early actions were very related to the protection of those in, in the case of Peru of the alpacas or llamas. Um, so we did you know, like, a, like a different type of strategies from veterinary kits and, and, and other elements to make sure that those alpacas wouldn't die you know, or wouldn't you know, like get, get sick. Uh, because we know that there are many impacts in, in, a, in a poor family you know, like after kind of like livestock is, uh, is lost. Catalina, that's really interesting. I, it raises a question in my mind, uh, which I wanted to, to raise now, and that is that in many developing countries, there are rather small and sometimes poorly resourced national meteorological services and disaster management agencies. So I was wondering how dependent is your work on, on the one hand, local forecasting skills, and on the other, on the work that's done in the international community? So local versus the international input on forecasting. So this is this is such a fascinating question because it's, it's one of the, the the core elements of our system. So, in principle, like our main objective is to work with the national hydrometeorological services, uh, with the different kind of like products or type of forecasts that they are developing or that they have you no know, like the development that they have available. That's like you no know, like the, the first step that we do when we set up uh, one of these uh, projects uh, or systems in general uh, is just like establish those relationships, identifying together with the National Hydromet Service, which are the forecasts that we could use for the specific hazards that, that we want to kind of like tackle. Um, and then there is a very in-depth analysis that can take different type of like forms, 
uh, to understand what is the skill of the forecast, the lead times, the probabilities, no, to basically really understand if the forecast produced at national level is good enough to be able to be used for forecast-based financing, like to be able really to use it to trigger financing. So there is a lot of work that is invested on that kind of like initial step of like cooperation. Of course, and I think, you know, like you mentioned this at the beginning, uh, I mean, in some countries, of course, the capacities of some hydromet services are way more advanced and, and they have you no know, like, like really advanced like type of like forecasting. In other countries, it is more limited. So, I mean, one of the principles is like, I mean, we work with what, what is there as long as we understand what is that like reliability and skill of the forecast. In, in many cases, what, what we are doing is that we can have a combined approach in which basically um, like information at local level, at producer national level uh, is, is used in combination with a global model. So like we often, for instance, use GLOFAS, which is not like the global floods uh, awareness system, not like, and, and the combination of like kind of like these two types of information makes the decision process a little bit like more robust. In other cases where there is absolutely no, like there is like no particular like forecast for, for that hazard, uh, then we try to find out other type of, of strategies. But I think in principle, and I think this is really fundamental is that as, a, as an auxiliary of the government, because every Red Cross in, in, in a country is an auxiliary of the government. Our, our approach is to work with those government agencies. So I guess from what you've said, you do quite a bit of work on evaluating forecasts that might be produced nationally to see what their, their quality is. That must be quite a, quite a significant project to do in its own right. And uh, perhaps also, I wonder what kind of timescale of the forecasts you're talking about? You know, what time range do you, do you, would you cover with those sort of forecasts? So the time scale that we often use uh, goes from like seasonal forecast to very short term forecast of like three days, uh, because it depends on, of course, on the hazard. You no, know? like if we are talking about uh, no, like a forecast based financing system for drought, then we're more on kind of like a seasonal scale. If we're talking about uh, and a focus based financing for a tropical cyclone, then we are talking about not like a three day type of, uh, of forecast. But there is a, going back to what you were saying of the skill analysis, then we kind of like look at the skill at all these different time scales. You're listening to WeatherPod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. Catalina, your example from Peru is um, a good example of where forecast-based financing has worked well. What have you learned that might be applicable elsewhere to improve the ability to use it as a more general disaster risk reduction mechanism? So, I mean, there have been like like so many levels, right? Like we have invested so much on making sure that every single pilot project that we had in the past uh, really captured, you know, like what... I mean, what went wrong, what went well. So, so there is like so much to, like, to, to say. There is, I mean, it, like, it's, it, this makes me like reflect on like, you no, know, like another example that can kind of like give you a little bit more idea of the lessons that, that we had had. Uh, because the Peruvian example of, is fascinating. 
we do also have another example in Mongolia that I would like to highlight because it's, it's just absolutely brilliant. Uh, and it has a very important role for the hydromet service uh, in which basically the Mongolian meteorological department developed uh, an impact-based forecasting service. It was part of a research project with the Nagoya University of Japan. Um, and then when we were setting up the focus-based financing system in Mongolia for a hazard that is called ZUD, um, we found out that this actually this impact-based forecasting service exists there and it was created. It was and, and after a lot of like discussions and, and analysis, you know, like we actually realized that that service that was already produced by the Met service, it was exactly what we needed to trigger our focus-based financing system. So basically we work very, very close with all the different government agencies. We set up the system back in 2018. Uh, we did one of the first activations of, the, of our FPF system. Uh, and and Nola, we were able to implement like several actions to protect as well livestock that normally Nola die during the, the zoo conditions. Uh, so that was that is such a brilliant example. So some of the lessons that kind of like comes from that project and, and it comes from like the 33 countries where we are actually implementing a uh, focus-based financing now uh, include like from, from one side, uh, like the the really strong need of co-produce the decision-making process for early action. So basically the co-production of these impact-based forecasting services is definitely one of the, like, the very essential elements because this is not a Red Cross issue. You know, like, this is definitely having those, those new type of uh, weather services is something that will benefit like so many, so many institutions and of course the public in general um, other like lessons that are still I mean we're still learning is is about the scale so most of our projects are still uh, although we have a principle that we want to act anywhere in a country where there is a very high likelihood of an impact of course that scale is not quite yet there because from one side the funding is not necessarily as big, you know, like to be able to really reach all the, all the potential people. So there is need to really like have a better coordination system. Uh, and ultimately, which I, I think this would, would not like should happen in the, in the future, is that government integrate a more anticipatory system within their disaster risk ma management strategies, because they're doing a lot of early warning systems and there's so many things like going on with the governments, but but there is not quite yet to the point to really be like fully anticipatory. And when governments really allocate their fundings and allocate kind of like the systems to, to adopt you know, like some of these strategies that we are doing in the humanitarian sector, we will reach that, that scale that is, uh, that is necessary. And, and I guess another element in terms of the, of the lessons that, are, that is like very important is, is again the investment on the capacity to implement. Because one thing is to having is to have the, the decision-making process. Yes, I, I could have my impact forecasting system that will tell me these regions and X, Y areas will be very impacted. But a humanitarian organization needs the capacity to be able to go and implement efficiently. And this is a long-term investment. 
no, on, on, on her organizational development of, of the institutions. So that's definitely another area. Are there places where you've had resistance to this, perhaps where it's not quite so well accepted? That's interesting. Well, no, to tell you the truth, I wouldn't say resistance. It's quite the opposite. Like there is, there is so much interest that that is like there is actually like a lot of like demand. Like like a lot of the Red Cross national societies, they are really really keen to start to set up these systems. And one of the big reasons is because like one of the most important things that we have done in the Red Cross movement to really motivate um, the, not like the national societies to create this, this type of system is that the International Federation of the Red Cross created back in 2018, a funding mechanism for early action. So basically every Red Cross in the world, if they have a plan that is very concrete with a clear concrete like triggers and the focus analysis and, and, and everything can like set up, they can automatically get funding for early action from a global funding that, that we have. I think the resistance might be more on the bigger picture, you no, know, like trying to connect, like you no, know, like big initiatives related to you know early warning systems, more kind of like development oriented. No, like with the work that we are doing. So there is still a lot, a lot of work to do on that, on, on connecting and, and creating coherent systems. You're listening to WeatherPod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. I wanted, you mentioned um, about co-production. We're, we're in the WeatherPod very interested in the idea of co-production of services and, and in particular also you know, the co-production of weather forecasts between the public and private sectors or between government and non-government actors. And I'm guessing from what you've said that you've got a lot of experience in that kind of um, co-production um, way of working. So I wondered whether there was a role for the Climate Centre perhaps to, to help others to to improve collaboration amongst all the stakeholders. Um, do you have any ideas on how that might be taken forward? Absolutely. I mean, the, I think the Climate Centre is definitely in a very strategic position to, to be able to, to make that co-production process that is necessary for the development of, a, of new type of like weather services and in particular impact forecasting like possible. So because when we talk about co-production, which has become you know, like a very kind of like trendy, trendy topic that we have been using this already for, for many years, we're just like talking about the development of services that is really tailored to the needs of the different institutions uh, that will use that service. And in the case of the humanitarian sector, no, like we're talking about the co-production of impact-based forecasting services that can be used by a Red Cross anywhere in the world or by a UN agency or an NGO or any humanitarian organization, and of course by the government, no, like DRR agencies, uh, to be able to trigger early action. And, and basically the, the principle no, is that that type of impact-based forecasting service, it cannot be developed in isolation by a national hydromet service, no, like, because it is not only about the forecast, it is about the risk information that goes along the weather forecast. And it's really about understanding 
how with this specific service we can tackle different type of impacts and, uh, and, and what are the impacts that we want to reduce at the end. So to, does, does the, do you get involved with interactions with the private sector? Do they contribute to this co-production? So at the moment, it is the co-production is mostly focused uh, with government agencies, with researchers, with humanitarian organizations. The private sector is playing at the moment, uh, at least in the 33 projects that we have uh, around the world, not necessarily a very strong role at the moment. However, I do believe totally that there is so much potential for the private sector to be part of this process. Like for example, like we are exploring with the, like the more kind of like the disaster risk financing uh, kind of like institutions, like, you know, like insurance and so on, which are expert on like catastrophic modeling and like all different kind of like tools that kind of like really uh, not that I have the expertise on like developing impact hazard curves and, and all like different elements, which are actually very important for impact-based forecasting. And, and there is a lot of potential to actually work you know, like with, with the private sector in that, in that aspect. I mean, as well, I would say with you know, like the emerging like private weather companies uh, as well, who are also developing like very interesting products. So I think there is definitely a scope to like in the next few years to expand the cooperation. Uh, but I think in terms of sustainability, uh, our priority of course is working with the government agencies because that's at the end where NOLA, where, where NOLA we would like to get the information from and, uh, and to work with them on strengthening their system. Catalina, you mentioned the need for coherent systems and, as you know, many countries look to the World Bank and other development partners for financial assistance to strengthen their meteorological and hydrological services and disaster management. I'm not aware of many efforts to incorporate the requirements for forecast-based financing, yet it seems it could help reduce the cost of large-scale post-disaster interventions if we could minimise the impact in the first place. What would your recommendations be to development partners? David, I think definitely this is one of the big areas of work that we have in the next years ahead, because it is clear that there are so many investments on kind of like hydromet modernization and impact-based forecasting that are totally separate to this you know, like concept of forecast-based financing, uh, or kind of like the overall kind of like aspect of anticipatory action. So we see clearly like countries in which like either the World Bank or, or another NOLA or a hydromet agency NOLA is investing no like in developing no like incredible like new weather services and improving forecasts and, and developing impact forecasting services for the public in general, for example. And they are absolutely, if we look at those type of like services, they, I mean, they, they are not translated into early action. They do not have really necessarily a focus on looking into you know, like who is more vulnerable, who could be more impacted, how these services can kind of like be linked like together. So one of the big recommendations um, like for like donors and, and, and development partners is that it will make more sense if the investments 
of hydromet modernization and development of, of impact-based forecasting services and impact-based forecast and, and focus-based financing uh, like the systems are implemented at the same time, are funded at the same time, that they are like, that there is a logic of, of that investment, you know, like, so, so we're, for, for instance, I mean, one of the fascinating, um, like, like work that we are doing with the UK Met Office, um, which is heading towards this direction, is that, I mean, we realized that they had a massive uh, investment in, in Southeast Asia um, on impact forecasting. They had this very, very big program, like really focused on a kind of like, like I would say a national level impact forecasting, not, not necessarily something that the humanitarian sector could use. But then we have been, because we have been cooperating with the UK Met Office for many years, then we realized, well, that this is actually a great opportunity to link our existing focus-based financing uh, like projects uh, and try to see how from the lessons that we have learned on, on the developing of these triggers for early action and or, or impact forecasting models, how this can help to influence the national hydromet services uh, to, to be able to potentially one day produce these, these type of services that we need. So, so it's, it's wonderful because basically there is a massive investment from one side from the UK government on that hydromet modernization and, and impact-based forecasting. And now we are aligning that with our focus-based financing. So trying to kind of like talk the same language. And, and one of the most important and fascinating things we have done this year is that we developed together with the Met Office and, and many other partners, including Cruise and and others that are really involved in, in impact-based forecasting, uh, we develop a guide uh, that builds on the WMO impact-based forecasting guidelines, but it is really focused on like impact-based forecasting for early action. And it brings the hydromet perspective with the humanitarian perspective or like what is an impact-based forecasting service that can really trigger early action for the humanitarian sector. So it's a, it's a bunch of like, principles and examples and ideas that kind of like bring these two communities together. I certainly hope we're able to expand on that with the huge investments going on in the World Bank and other international finance institutions because there's clearly an opportunity to benefit from this knowledge that you have. So Catalina, finally, um, from from my side, you, you've, you've given us a great picture of, of forecast-based financing and also your work in in the Red Cross Red Crescent on on developing that concept in lots of projects and and ways in which you are working to to improve forecast based financing, I wondered if you had any final uh, thoughts on on where you see your work going next to to continue the improvement. Totally. So I think that, I mean there are still so many things to do, and I think clearly from one side is the the expansion to more countries. So. At the moment, 33 Red Cross and Red Crescent national societies are developing these type of systems. Uh, and we do hope that in the next five, 10 years, we will have like way more, like 60, 70, 80. I mean, all of the national societies being able to have this system. So we're kind of like heading towards that direction, definitely. The other important uh, direction is really to strengthen that cooperation with WMO, with the different members, you know, national hydromet services for, for that co-production of impact based forecasting services that can be truly used 
for humanitarian NOLA early action, like institutional NOLA like services that can help us to trigger uh, early action. So I think that is definitely. And, and as well, uh, because it's not only about the forecast, no, but it's about the, the risk information. No, there is this need to continue like influencing and, 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 and supporting the improvement of data quality on, on risk information like vulnerability and exposure and so on. And using, for instance, uh, open source data like OpenStreetMap that offers like so much potential. Uh, for the developing of these impact-based forecasting systems. So I think that's definitely a big, big area. Well, unfortunately, we've used up all the time we have. Thank you very much, Catalina, for sharing your ideas with us. And we hope to see forecast-based financing built into the disaster risk management strategies of many more countries. Thanks very much, Catalina. Thanks to you. This has been like, really interesting. And I really yeah, hope to, to continue collaborating with, with you and I'm really looking forward to hear the, the thoughts and ideas from your podcast audience. And yeah, thank you. You're listening to WeatherPod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. Well, now it's time for Wow, That's Interesting. Wow! So David, what have you got for us this episode? In our conversation with Catalina James, she mentioned the Zud phenomenon. Many of our listeners, even the meteorologists, might not be familiar with this. No, I hadn't heard the term before. Well, the Zud, D-Z-U-D, is the name given to Mongolia's extreme winter weather. There are different categories of Zud, white for heavy snow, black for lack of precipitation and long dry months, and iron for winters with short thaw and subsequent hard freezes. I assume it has a huge impact on livelihoods on the Mongolian steppes. Yes, the Zud kills large numbers of livestock. In January 2018, 700,000 animals perished, which also imperils the lives of the nomadic herders who rely on the animals for food and income. Is this a common occurrence? Well, between 1940 and 2015, an authoritative Zud declaration has been issued about 12 times, and more than 20 million animals have died since the beginning of this century. What's more, it appears that events which occur perhaps every decade are now becoming annual events in some parts of the steppe. Half of the country was declared at risk of a zood in January 2020. How is the climate changing? Summertime temperatures are up about 1.5 degrees compared to the last century, and there are now prolonged periods of below-average precipitation compared with a long-term record. Studies of tree rings by researchers at the Mongolian National University suggests the recent drought conditions are anomalous when compared with the last 1,000 years. So the periods of prolonged drought mean less water for grass and thinner animals come winter? Yes, but researchers at Oxford University aren't convinced that drought is a necessary precursor of a zood winter. As Catalina mentioned, an impact-based zood early warning system is being implemented. This combines meteorological hazards, including forecast temperatures, snow and drought, with information on pasture-carrying capacity to create zood risk maps. These take into account overgrazing and other factors that contribute to weakened animals. Who is doing this and how is it being used? The University of Nagoya in Japan and the Information and Research Institute of Meteorology, Hydrology and Environment of Mongolia have developed the ZOOD risk maps, which are updated every 10 days. The risk maps are used to guide early preparations, including providing and relocating animal food stocks and working uh, with international organisations like the Red Cross Red Crescent on financial transfers to cover costs. Meanwhile, another group is being led by the NGO People in Need and involves the Association for the Przewalski Horse, Nagoya University, the National University of Mongolia and the National Agency for Meteorology and Environmental Monitoring of Mongolia 
They focused on creating an algorithm, the Livestock Mortality and Multi-Indicator Vulnerability Index. And what have been the results so far? Uh, the researchers working on the risk maps report that early preparation, together with the distribution of cash, animal fodder and hay, has reduced animal losses significantly. Even though the number of uh, numbers of animal deaths seem high, they are low compared with the total livestock, about 2.5% of the total. The group working on the vulnerability index aims uh, to use this to inform decisions by the middle of the autumn preceding a zoo winter at the IMAG level, which is the provincial level. This will enable governments to prepare well in advance. The index is based on a linear algorithm using historical data from 1998 to 2014. The data explain about two-thirds of the livestock mortality in that period. However, independently, Robert Ritz from LETU Mongolia American University highlights the high false positives in this model. He says about three-quarters of the total cases are false, so the model consistently overstates risk. Although, in and of itself, this isn't bad. No, providing they don't result in an erosion of trust and wasted resources. But on the other hand, high false negatives would be potentially disastrous. Yes, exactly. Fortunately, these are relatively low and probably could be managed. Overall, these efforts are helping the government support herders and livestock in the extreme conditions of the Zood. Also, with many experts contributing to all aspects of the problem, from short-range and seasonal forecasting to machine learning and livestock management, the tools should improve. Well, that concludes this episode of The Weather Pod. We hope you've enjoyed it. David and I will be back next month. And in the meantime, please give us your feedback via email to support at gweforum.org.